Bibles with you, please turn them to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Our Lord Jesus had spent, or just spent, 40 days in the wilderness with no food and no water, being tempted by Satan. We read of their climactic encounter of all that recorded for us in the first 13 verses of chapter 4 where Jesus Christ proved why He was the beloved Son with whom God was well pleased. He will be the new Adam, we found, who will bring humanity the blessing of salvation through His perfect obedience and His crucifixion rather than through the curse of, or rather than bringing the curse of sin and death. He was hungry and thirsty and on His last leg, but in our text this morning we find out that Jesus doesn't return from combat with Satan limping, or with His Spirit battered and broken, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has come to proclaim good news. After thousands of years of humanity's downward spiral, God has sent His Son into the world to redeem us, to set us free. The coming of Jesus into the world means that God has decided to move in our favor, even though we've rebelled against Him, to act for our benefit. His heart is fixed on our salvation. That's at the core of who God is for us. Luke moves this story about Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth to the beginning of his gospel, rather than placing it later, which it was chronologically, in order to display the purpose of Jesus and the context of his ministry from the very beginning. Luke wants certain things about Jesus very clear. Jesus came to proclaim a message, and that message is going to get him killed. So what could it be then? What is so awful about what Jesus claimed, came to proclaim that the only answer is to murder Him? Jesus Christ came to proclaim that the Lord desires to set us and all creation free from sin and death and the curse, much to the disappointment of all those who want to do it themselves. Let me pray. Our Father, we are thankful for Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank You so much that my fitness for preaching does not come from me, but from You. That, Lord, if You would be with me this morning by the power of Your Holy Spirit and enable me to speak Your words, Father, they would be of benefit for the people that have come here. If I only have myself to give them, it means nothing. But, Father, You are with me. Lord, remain with me for the purpose of preaching this sermon and overshadow me, God, I ask you. For you know who I am. And you know that I need you more than anything else in this moment. Father, I pray for everybody that is here. That, Father, you would open their ears and soften their hearts and enable us all to listen to the eternal word that you gave to us about your Son. We ask this in His name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so it has begun. This is the activity that is at the core of Jesus' ministry. Preaching and teaching the Word of God. Even the many signs and miracles that Jesus did were for the purpose of His preaching. That's why He 
did them so that we would be more careful and willing to listen to what he had to say. As I mentioned in the beginning briefly, Luke brings this next scene forward chronologically and places it front and center because it gives us the lens through which he wants us to view the entire ministry of Jesus. Luke wants us to see everything about the ministry of Jesus in light of Isaiah 61. So let's keep reading here, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus comes back to Nazareth where he had been brought up. The people there know him very well. He continues what apparently was his custom of teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And when the text tells us that they handed him the scroll of Isaiah off the shelf of their scrolls, that means Jesus had asked for that. There were no appointed readings at this time in the synagogue. The reader chose what he wanted to read. So he deliberately chose the text of Isaiah 61. In other words, Jesus came to Nazareth to read Isaiah 61 and to declare that the messianic era of salvation now begins in him. Verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus read specifically from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but we might get a better sense of his point if we look at what he read in the context of Isaiah's whole prophecy there. You don't have to turn there. I want to do this as quickly as I can. But coming into Isaiah 59, the text is very sad. It's very heavy at that point. It begins with the accusation of Israel for her sins in verses 1 through 8. It moves to their confession in verses 9 through 15. And then in verses 15 through 20, what becomes apparent is that things in Israel were so hopeless that God himself was going to have to intervene and make everything right. So the section closes there with the promise that a Redeemer shall come to Zion, even to those in Jacob who turn from their rebellion. Now that relates to what John the Baptist has been doing in getting people to prepare the way for the Lord. But the chapter, that is Isaiah 59, climaxes in verse 21 with an affirmation when God says, As for me, my covenant, this is my covenant with them. Well, with whom? With those in verse 20 who turned away from their rebellion. That is the righteous remnant of Israel. That's always been true Israel. God continues, my spirit which is upon you. Now, upon whom? Who is God's spirit upon for this reconciling work in Israel? The you in that verse is a masculine singular. It refers to a male person. So, two times before this in Isaiah, God had already said that he would place his spirit on this coming messianic king. That was in chapter 11, verse 1. And upon his suffering servant. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, these are one and the same, he's revealing. But God continues in Isaiah 59, And my words which I have placed in your mouth, that is the servant. So notice the last part of 59, 21. There's this affirmation that God has equipped his servant to speak his word. And it goes on to say they, namely that is God's words, 
They will not depart from your mouth, this servant's mouth, or from the mouth of your seed, or from the mouth of the seed of your seed. From now on and for all time. That is a prophecy that God will never allow His people to be without His Word that was given through His servant in Isaiah. His Word will have an ongoing, continuous place among the people of His servant. That's Isaiah 59.21. So when we finally come into Isaiah 60-62, through 62, the theme here is this future and glorious restoration of Israel, which is made up in truth of the righteous, repentant remnant, and we find all those who are of faith, since these are actually the only actual sons of Abraham in Galatians 4. And right in the middle of all that comes Isaiah 61, 1-3 through 3 really, where all of a sudden someone is speaking in the first person. Just as the servant spoke in 49, 1-4 through 4, and 54-9, through 9, the royal servant figure of Isaiah 42 and following that proclaims God's word is this messianic servant and prophet who announces the arrival of the new age of salvation in Isaiah 61. That brings us back to Luke 4, and now we understand what Jesus is doing and what he's saying and the claims of Christ when he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled, fulfilled in your hearing. That is, this is me. The new era of salvation, the time of the Lord's favor is present in the person of Jesus. The new age which Isaiah prophesied has arrived. Fulfillment had begun. And Jesus was not only the royal servant-like prophetic figure Isaiah had tracked throughout this prophecy, he was also the one who would announce it and bring it. All of it. Now remember, into that glorious proclamation, you have to remember the context here. These are his friends and probably relatives that he's talking to, that he grew up with. That's quite a claim for a carpenter to make about himself. The year of the Lord's favor for humanity includes the proclamation of good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus from Nazareth was going to do all of that. If Jesus is telling the truth, that's an absolutely overwhelming claim. He had lived among these folks for 30 years before He left to do the ministry. But the essence, remember, of the proclamation here is forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins. Only God can do that. It's release that's coming to humanity in the person and work of Jesus is what He's saying. Creation, all creation, from the dust to the human being, was meant to exhale for all time with the coming of Jesus Christ. His coming means liberation from the bondage of sin and sickness and Satan. That's what these verses mean. Sometimes that will include literal physical healing. Sometimes that will include literal exorcisms and even rebuking the groaning, destructive forces of nature, which Jesus will do throughout Luke, especially later in chapter 8 when He calms the sea, in addition to forgiving sins. Arthur Just says that in his ministry, Jesus carries out the detailed fulfillment of this prophecy by releasing creation from its bondage to sin and restoring it to its proper state of harmony with the Creator. Jesus Christ didn't come to get us to the starting line and send us off with a push in the right direction, beloved. That's not good news. I'm here to rescue you and do everything for you. That's much better than 
I'm here to help. We don't grasp our need. So we don't really grasp the beauty of Jesus. Almost particularly as Christians, maybe. Because we tend to think of ourselves as getting better and doing better and being better than those that don't know Jesus. And so when we hear about Jesus releasing and forgiving, and we think that's very nice for other people to hear, but it doesn't really get us going anymore. He has come to bring good news, and that news is that in Jesus, all of creation has been freed from the bondage of its fallenness. That is, everything is going to change. All things will be made new because 2,000 years ago, roughly, Jesus came and paid the whole bill for all that. That's the hope you and I live with because this is the time of the Lord's favor. It started then. It's still that time this morning. And that favor is not a concept. right? The evidence of the Lord's favor is not your wealth or your health or anything like this. It's a person. That's how we know of the Lord's favor. It's a redeemer, not a life coach. When Jesus says today in verse 21, he means that the end of this world as it is had arrived. Everything you and I live in and experience and go through is ending because it's the new age started then. What the jubilee jubilee year meant for Old Covenant Israel, Jesus takes and applies now to the whole world. He makes it eternal jubilee. The forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of debt, the end of the brokenness and fallenness of creation. It's present in Him and in His ministry. And somehow, here's the thing, somehow that's offensive. What is wrong with us? How is that offensive? Why is that offensive? Why do we hate Jesus? Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Oh, then this is, this is good, right? And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, because Jesus knows all things and what's in all of us, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Almost immediately after the proclamation of the best news the world could ever receive, there's trouble. Yes, they're marveling at his gracious words in verse 22, but then they remember that, of course, oh, this is all too good to be true. This is Joseph's son. And there's the rub. There we are. There's humanity. Oh, it was a beautiful sermon you just gave and a beautiful reading, but I mean, who cares? We, we know you. You're not bringing in the messianic age. We grew up with you. We've known you since you were a baby. Therefore, it can't be you. Sure, Jesus is the, you know, he's fine for helping build their tables and build their cabinets and all that, but the Messiah, the 
promised royal servant of Isaiah? Yeah, right. Couldn't be one of us that has come to bring the good news. It has to be, you know, someone from somewhere higher. We're far too good to be saved by one of our own. J.C. Ryle said, How apt men are to despise the highest privileges when they are familiar with them. This is pure pride here. And we, we look, we, we do this today. We have the same kind of thinking they had in Nazareth. And, and the word of God proclaimed, that doesn't prove anything. That's not enough, right? So we're always longing for more. Maybe, maybe a revival will do it. Maybe a concert will do it. Maybe that will get the community in here. We talk like this, don't we? You can't just preach the word all the time. It doesn't really, Right? You gotta, you gotta dress it up. You gotta add things in. That's what people like. That'll change hearts, but one guy bringing the same gospel every Sunday? No, we're, we're far too mature in advance for such mundanity. We need more if, if you're going to get to us, Jesus. That's what they're saying, yes. You're far too familiar to us for us to accept the truth from you. That's pride. Jesus hears what they're saying. He knows what they're thinking. All you brought us is a word. The promise of release and freedom and forgiveness, that's great. We've heard about all the awesome stuff you did in Capernaum. If you want to impress us, then you've got to do that same stuff here. After all, we're your people. Why wouldn't you not, why, why would you not do it for us? Are we not good enough for you? Me, 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 right? The word of God proclaimed, then what do we do with it? Twist it. Me, 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 me. Verse 24, look at that again. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And Jesus goes on to prove that statement with a story from the days of the prophet Elijah from 1 Kings 17. And then the latter prophet Elisha from 2 Kings 5 in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jesus references something very strange here. There were tons of widows in Israel in Elijah's time during that great drought. And God didn't send Elijah to any of them. He sent him to Zarephath in Sidon. That's Gentile territory. That's Pagansville in Baal country. To a Gentile widow there. Israel also had plenty of lepers in the latter prophet Elisha's day. But the only one cleansed under Elisha's ministry was a pagan Syrian army general. The enemy. Clutch your pearls, right? God would never... But he did. Twice. Now, it isn't just the fact that Jesus referenced God sending his prophets to unclean Gentiles that riles up the people here as we're about to see. He, Jesus brings out their hearts. You see what he does? He sees right through that facade of, this is great. And he knows what's in their heart and he goes right after it and he pulls it out. That's what the Word does. That's what Jesus does. It, it, it isn't the fact that just the fact that Jesus referenced God sending his prophets to unclean Gentiles that riled up the people so much. It's what Jesus was implying about them by bringing that up. In sending Elijah to be helped by and to help that widow in Zarephath, for example, he was bypassing his own people. And Jesus implies that something similar is happening 
they're in Nazareth because He's not going to do signs and wonders in their midst. In Capernaum, apparently, they knew they needed Jesus. And what Jesus came to give, they had too much need to be prideful and believe that Jesus owed them something, had to prove something to them. They weren't like that, apparently, in Capernaum. At least not in this regard. In Nazareth, they actually think they're above it because Jesus grew up there. This, it really isn't anything too deep or, or profound here. It's the simple fact that it can't be you, we know you. This, this is a statement about who they really are. They are so prideful, they, they, they'll reject the gospel. They'll reject the year of the Lord's favor because they know it. We're, we're, the tech, we're petty. We're petty. And we never think we're petty. And Jesus is like, you guys don't think you're petty. Let me show you that you're petty. God in His judgment is passing them by because of how they think and feel. We think so highly of ourselves that the Gospel by itself, just the reading of the Word, the proclamation of the Word, that's not enough. We need more. Give us something better. Give us something better. And they don't want to hear that God is passing goodbye, especially not from one of their own. Right? They're, they're going to think that Jesus thinks He's too good for them. When in reality, that's what they're all saying about themselves. We're too good for you to just come here and proclaim the Word. Stuff, man. Stuff. Like you did over there. They're, they're just envy, envious and carnal. And God is passing them by. Jesus is standing right there. The year of the Lord's favor has come. Not, not if you don't do that stuff here, it didn't. To the peril of their own souls. Don't act like you're too good for us by withholding from us what you did for others. We're better than that. We deserve more here. Humans are petty and they're prideful. And now we see the other reason why Luke moved this scene from later in Jesus' life when it actually took place to the beginning of His ministry in this Gospel. We pick it up in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Him out of the town and brought Him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw Him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, He went away. It wasn't His time yet for His death. That He would offer up willingly. But, you see, we don't do this with people that say stuff we don't like because we don't want to go to jail. That's it. Right? We're not more advanced than these humans. Have you seen their architecture and art? We're not. Right? We've been lied to that they were just dumb country, you know, fantasy-believing hicks. No, no, they weren't. That's not the story of humanity. We are just like this. That's why it's in the Word. If somebody says something we don't like, that is all it takes. If somebody withholds from us something we think we deserve and are entitled to, that is all it takes. If we could get away with it, we would kill them. But 
even in light of what he had just told them in verses 17 through 21. This is the destiny of Jesus in this world. Regardless of the fact that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, yeah, but we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. And, and if, if you say, I would never. Yes, you would, and so would I. That's who the text is about. The ones that say, not me. Maybe them, maybe you, but not me. That's Nazareth. Let the one who has ears to hear, hear this morning. It's, this is church rage, which is the worst kind. This is not road rage. This is church rage. We all come into this room thinking that we're entitled to certain things. And if we don't get them, there is no limit to what we will do. It's not a fun word to hear. But rarely is the word of the Lord fun to hear. This is self-righteous pride. It's, that's the thing. We, we put a, a, a darker black eye on certain sins. And if we don't have them in our midst, or if we can avoid them, then we're not that bad because we can compare ourselves to those on the outside. These are deeply religious people. These are, for all intents and purposes, very morally upstanding people. These are hard-working, blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth people. And in a good five minutes, they're about to drag this man they grew up with out of town and throw him off a cliff to his death. For two reasons. He didn't say what they wanted him to say, and he didn't do what they wanted him to do. And there wasn't any law at the time that really would have been any trouble for them. I mean, clearly, there's a way around it. That's what the Pharisees did when they killed Jesus. The only thing stopping them from killing Jesus here is God's love for them. It's self-righteous pride most of the time, not blatant immorality when it comes to why Jesus is rejected. We're fine with Jesus coming for the worst of us, but not for the cream of the crop. How dare Jesus insinuate that I'm like this? How dare Jesus insinuate that I need His perfect life lived for me and His sacrificial death died for me when I've spent my whole life trying my best to be as good and honorable as I can? But how dare you, Jesus? They're already going to kill Him in Luke. Already. Do we really think that we're any better than this? Right? Do, do, that we're not susceptible to the same kind of blind arrogance as those people were. They, they knew their Scriptures better than us. Jesus was not rejected because He preached some way of life or law that was just too hard or too high for anyone to seriously live. And so, you're making it too hard on us. we got to get rid of you. He was rejected for the sake of the Gospel. They needed what Jesus said He was in verses 18 and 19. Whether He did amazing things in their midst or not. That's what they needed.
The gospel is the most offensive thing God has to say in this broken world. It's the most offensive thing the Bible has to say. You cannot fix yourselves. You are not nearly as great and capable as you think you are. But I love you. I've paid the price for you. Receive my gift to you. And we seethe back at Him. How dare He not recognize our greatness and ability? How dare that not be what the church is about? Recognizing me. 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 Let's kill Him. Right? We'll save ourselves. We'll trust ourselves. We'll do it our way. Don't act like we need you, Jesus. It is precisely this that we hate. That Jesus comes with grace to say that everything about our salvation depends on Him. That, that's, that's what the devil has convinced us is not true about us. Our britches are just a little too big for the simple gospel. This first event in Nazareth here in Luke says the exact same thing old Simeon had said in the temple when Jesus was a baby. He is a sign that will be spoken against. And He is a sword that will lay us open to reveal what is really in our hearts. Yeah, and they'll kill Him for it. Dale Ralph Davis very aptly says that in Luke, the crucifixion begins at Nazareth. What happens here is just a small-scale version of what is to come. And of course it is. This is what God's prophets have always experienced. They get killed. Why? Why do they get killed? Because the truth is offensive. We're blind and desperate and stubborn and evil. And if we don't get what we want, all our Christianity goes right out the window. There ought to be one prayer on our lips, beloved, every single day. Historically, the church called it the essence of it, the Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Yeah. That's what we need. Jesus, heal us. Forgive us. Break down our pride. Cleanse our souls. Now, what, so what's happening in your heart right now? Yeah, I don't need that. Is that what's happening in your heart? Don't answer out loud. Don't do that. Not right now. All right, what's, what's happening? I, I know this stuff. I've heard this word. Right? He came to set the captives free. And our pride keeps us enslaved. You see, beloved, that, that's the thing here. This isn't interesting. There, there's no need. It's not that it's always sinful, but it's always dangerous. There, there's no need for glitz and glam and parades. That, to, to get Jesus out there. There's no need for that. 
right? And, and what you win people with, you win them too. So what, if, if we win people with stuff, we better keep doing stuff or we're going to lose them. You win people with Jesus, you keep giving them Jesus, and the Word will weed out what it needs to weed out. And you trust the process, you trust the Lord, and you walk on. And you weep for those that leave, and you pray for their return. Or those that reject Christ, and you pray for their return. You pray that they would accept Him. And you soldier on. We want to throw big parties and have big shows and all this because what is that? Why do we want to do that? Why do we feel like that? We, we have to do that because that's a testimony to our work and our effort and our talents. And somehow the simple gospel needs dressed up with that or it's not going to work. So what does that say about what we really believe about the power of God to save people? Don't think God doesn't know our hearts. We want the gospel to be more of a come and see event than a go and tell lifestyle. Right? Then you can pay somebody else to do it and just applaud that. We don't want to make Jesus clearer by loving our neighbors and loving our enemies and serving people in the stuff of everyday life. That might not get recognized. It's much slower. You don't see the results that you see if you have like a a big thing. We, we pat ourselves on the back. We count numbers. We want to huddle up in the building and lob event grenades over the sides so that people will come here and be impressed and maybe even get saved. That would be great too, but as long as they show up. And rather than even being willing to consider if this might be true, we're often offended at this notion. That maybe it really isn't about us. Maybe it really isn't. And what we can do. But instead it's about the power of the word Jesus preached. That we are called to proclaim. The, the word of God really is enough. It will reap what God wants it to reap in the time in which he wants to reap it. Right? God gives the growth. God gives the increase. Jesus said, I will build my church. You don't do that. Don't try. You'll get in my way. So just preach the gospel. Seriously, beloved, it works. It works. It bears the fruit God wants to bear. It may not do all that flashing lights do. The things, it may not do everything that we associate with success. But Jesus made preaching the pure gospel His main priority. Are we too good for that? Do we think we can somehow do more for God with our inventions and ideas than He can do with His own Word, which is what He calls the power of God for salvation? Right? It's, we, we, all, churches, all churches do this. Like We do this. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. Amen, brother. But if we don't do this and this and this and this and this, it's not, it's not going to do it. Right? Why are we like that? God help us. God make us listen. Beloved, we had a miracle happen here last week. Do you remember? We had a miracle last Sunday morning. We had a woman who came forward to receive the salvation of Jesus. 
her name was written down in heaven last week. Do we realize what that is? That something supernatural and impossible and unworldly happened here in this building last Sunday morning, just a week ago. Jesus was here setting a captive free, releasing someone from bondage. There is evidence that Jesus is reversing the curse right here in Moundsville on just another Sunday morning. But is it old hat? And I'm not telling you it is. I'm asking you. I really am. Is it just old hat? We're we're very funny people, you know. I remember there was a big dust up. I wasn't I wasn't married yet. wasn't preaching anything like that. I just remember the big fight at our church because First Baptist Church of Heath in Heath, Ohio. They had the power team in. You remember who that was? The power team. All these big muscular guys, and they would like rip phone books in half and blow up hot water bottles and break all kinds of ice and boards and bats and stuff. And they would say this phone book represents drugs and they'd rip it in half. And good thing that nobody who's lost can rip a phone book in half. Anyway, so you have all that, right? And so there's this big fight. Should we have that in here or should we not? And all of a sudden, school classes are fighting. Everybody's fighting about it. Here, So the power team won the day and here was the argument. Here's, here, because nobody could get around this. But if just one person gets saved, it's all worth it. That's right. One person can get saved in the space of six months in a church, but that's not enough. See, is it enough or not? You see what I'm saying? You can get one person saved in the space of a church year, but that's not enough. But if you bring in the bells and whistles and that gets one person saved, oh, now you're talking. See, now you're bearing fruit. Which is it? When is it? What is enough for us? Right? If just one person gets saved, it's all worth it. You had one person get saved on a normal Sunday, right? I'm talking about that church now. I'm not talking about what you might be thinking or feeling about that. I'm talking about that example of it, you know? It just, we, we want, like, yeah, that's great. It's great that you came to set the captives free. It's great that you came to, Give us the year of the Lord's favor. That's, that's awesome. But like, what else do you have? What else do you have? Right? You want to impress us, Jesus. We, we need signs and big and loud and popular. And I mean, the, the, the gospel is being proclaimed week after week after week after week from pulpits all across America. But if you don't have like some football player say that he prays before the game, then the gospel is just going to fail in America. God is working here and everywhere else His Word is proclaimed. He's working all the time. He's building His church. This is the year of the Lord's favor. There's never a time to not be excited about what God is doing because He's always doing it. Always. He's doing it in Moundsville. He's doing it in L.A. He's doing it in San Francisco. The news isn't dictating to you what's actually happening in the world. The news is dictating to you all that they want you to know about. 
The only thing happening in San Francisco is not that the community is going to trash and people are going to the bathroom on the street. Yeah, that's happening. That's not the only thing happening in San Francisco. I guarantee it. Why? Because the Word is there. The Word is there. The Gospel is there. God is is working here, regardless of the baggage any of us might be carrying. He's doing His work here, now. Why? Because it's the year of the Lord's favor. That's the age in which we actually live. He's still saving souls. Listen, that's enough. That's enough that He's doing that. Do we count that as success? Do we count that as good enough? We're going to pour the waters of baptism again, God willing, in two more Sundays. We've had quite a bit of that this year. God is at work. The question is, is how He's working enough or does it need to look like it looked in Capernaum? Any broken stick like me can preach the gospel. It's, it's not rocket science, right? Like, like you don't have to have me doing this. Anybody can preach the gospel. But nobody can preach a better gospel than the gospel. Jesus sees right through all of that and that we're really like this, so that's why He came. Did He strike everybody dead with lightning that day? No. He just found His way back through the crowd because He's the Son of God in addition to being a man and walked on to proclaim the good news. Look at what He's proclaiming here. This liberty for the captives. The release from bondage. It's not just going to be for Israel. That's way too small a thing for Jesus according to Isaiah 49.6. No. He means to bring this release to the entire world. This is the ripple in the pond that Jesus made and it's been stretching out to the ends of the earth ever since and God wanted you to hear it. And guess what? You're here this morning. You are hearing it. He did do it. He did bring it to you. For you. You think you just came here today. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe this is your church, right? You think, well, yeah, I go to church on Sunday. That's true. It's all very good. Don't stop doing that. But He wanted you to hear this. He wanted you to know this. There's no reason to gather if there isn't Luke 4, 18 and 19. There's no reason to gather. Don't think you're too good for it. Don't. Don't think anything that we can do or want is better or more powerful or more effective than the good news of the Gospel. And the best way to proclaim it is just to say it. Don't try to outthink and outsmart. Just proclaim it. It's good enough as it is. We need it too badly to ever grow weary of it. There's not another power of God for salvation other than the Gospel. This is the time of the Lord's favor for planet Earth. Take advantage of it. Seize the day. And not just for you, but for your neighbors and for your enemies. 
They need it too. Somebody's going to have to tell the people that want to kill us that Jesus died for them. Somebody's got to tell them. Now, look, I'm not doing a sermon about self-defense. So please don't think I mean just let somebody kill you. I mean, Jesus did. So I don't know where we stand on all that, you know. All I know is this. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn it. Adam did that. Jesus came that the world might be saved through him. That's why you and I are here. We don't need to stand up and condemn the world. That's not boldness. That's grandstanding. When you wonder if this, what Jesus came to do, is for you, what you need to ask yourself is, well, am I a human being? Am I a part of the world? Then you can know on the authority of God's Word that Jesus came for you. He came to set you free. You. He came to forgive your sins. To release you from bondage to the fear of death. Amen. Would you stand, please?